Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers on mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Good morning, church. Our Bible reading this morning is taken from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 15. At the end of the reading, I'll say thanks be to God. This is the word of the Lord. Please say thanks be to God. All right. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and destructive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Can you hear me? Thank you, Egwonje. Um, I think we can put our hands together for Jesus. So if you're here for the first time, welcome. My name is Toki, and we are in a series titled Wait. It's on the book of First Thessalonians. And today we are going to be looking at First Thessalonians chapter 5, from verse 12 to 15. Before we go on, let us bow our heads together and pray. Oh Lord, we are waiting. Let your river flow. Come flood our hearts again. Fill our thirsty souls. We ask, O oh God, that you will cleanse us once again with the water of your word and baptize us again. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, so I was thinking the other day about technology. And it was interesting. Well, it's always interesting, but while the aim of technology is to make life easier, the reactions to technology are not always uniform. So there are some people that embrace it. They are like, where has this thing been all my life? But there are others that are a bit reluctant, resistant even, to new technology. That's a name for these people. They are called Luddites. The name comes from a um, 19th century organization that, of, clothes, of clothes weavers that went about destroying factories because machines had taken their jobs. And so Luddites have existed not just in the 19th century, but they, they existed long before then and continue to exist today. In fact, in City Church, we have a huge contingent of Luddites. <laughs> Sometime last year, the leaders said because of issues concerning people staying back, I mean, stay, traffic, where people live, <laughs> our gospel communities, which are our small groups, <laughs> we call them GCs, all, all of them will be online. And some people embraced it. But the Luddites assembled. <laughs> they started lobbying this leader, said talking to this other leader, sharing chats, sharing graphs. 
and eventually they got their physical disease. <laughs> Lordites. I was supporting them, but that's not the issue here. <laughs> one of the more interesting examples of Lordism was actually a long time ago. It's actually, that's the one that concerns us today. And it had to do with the invention of the book. And so, of course, we call this book, but this is not a technical name. Books have existed in different forms. What this is actually called, this form factor for a book, is called a codex. And so why were some people against it? Why could, should anybody be against books? <laughs> so before then, books were predominantly in the form of scrolls. And so some scholars argued that the problem with a codex was that you could just open it anywhere and start reading. Unlike a scroll that you had to roll and start from the beginning and read through to get the full story. What was their point? Their point was that context is important. And so in this passage, Paul gives instructions about how the church should conduct itself. And we are going to look at those instructions. But we are going to be Luddites today. And think of it in terms of the score. We are going to look backwards and also forwards because for us to fully appreciate, understand, and apply these instructions that we'll see, we have to understand them in their context. And what's the context of these instructions? The context is the gospel. That's a longer definition, but a shorter one is the good news about what God has done for us by Jesus' sacrifice. And in this sermon, I've titled A Gospel-Shaped Community. We'll see that the church community is called to a life of loving service that flows out of our understanding and appreciation of the gospel. And we'll look at it under three headings. A led community, a serving community, and a true community. And I just want to give us a heads up. This has been an incredibly convicting sermon for me to prepare. And we're going to hear things that will challenge us. But it's my prayer that we'll look to Jesus our motivation and empowerment for the life he calls us to live. Amen. Amen. So the first point is a led community. So the passage is divided into two parts, I can see. And so first it talks about how to treat leaders and then how to treat fellow members. So first, how to treat leaders. What I think is worth mentioning, especially given our times, the fact that there are leaders in the church. Yes, we are all children of God. Yes, God does not have grandchildren. But we are also a gathered people. And for any gathering to achieve its goals, it has to be organized. And organizing requires leadership. The same way a family has parents, the same way a team has coaches, the church has elders, pastors, people, have who, people who lead, people who have authority to direct the affairs of, the, of that community. And this was never controversial in any other generation apart from this. But there is such a thing as hierarchy in the plan of God. There is. It's not a hierarchy of status. Nobody is worth more than the other person. But there is a hierarchy of responsibility for the good of the community. What are leaders responsible for? For leading us towards spiritual maturity and towards fulfilling the mission of God for the glory of God. But we also have responsibilities to them, and this is what this passage addresses. I'm going to read from verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. 
I do think we tend to relate to our leaders in two ways that are not correct. The first one is that we look at them as pretty much vendors. So the extent of your relationship with them is that they are providing you a service. And so the issue of esteeming them highly or not does not even arise in the first place. The other way, which is, I think is a lot more common because of our culture, is that we esteem them highly, but as a means to an end. We esteem them highly because of what we will get. It's still transactional. Maybe we want status. Maybe we want access. Maybe we want blessings from God. <laughs> like the saying says, it is the anointing that you place value on that will value your life. <laughs> but the Bible says, yes, esteem them, but do it in love. It's talking about a heart disposition that is expressed in an outpour of love. There's a storybook we have at home that illustrates this very well for me. The name of the book is Tiki Tiki Tembo. And it's set in the Far East in ancient times. And the story goes that in those days, parents expressed how much they valued their children by the length of the names they gave them. And so this woman had two sons. Her second son she called Chang, which supposedly means little or nothing. But her first son, her most honored son, the one she esteemed highly in love. You know what his name was? His name was Tiki Tiki Tembo, Nosa Rembo, Taribari Ruchi, Piperi Pembo. Which means, which means the most wonderful thing in the whole wide world. And Paul is saying, I think he's saying, are your pastors, your leaders, should be your Tiki Tiki Tembo. The word he uses for highest regard is the same word he uses in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, when he says, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly, above all we can ask or think. And he's saying, this is how you want, I want, you're supposed to value your leaders in love. Why? Verse 13 tells us, because of the work they do. Their work of teaching you more about Christ, of helping you understand the gospel more, of helping you become more like Jesus. Here's the logic. If the kingdom of God is the most important thing to you, then you will value people that move you towards that most important thing. So the Bible says, value your leaders, honor them, love them, exceedingly, abundantly, above. But if you're coming from a dysfunctional church background, alarm bells are already ringing, 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 ringing in your head. Because you know that passages like this have often been used to abuse people. And so you may be asking, how can I obey this passage without putting myself in a situation where I can be taken advantage of. And I think verse 12, Paul, in verse 12, Paul's give, in verse 12, Paul gives us a description of church leadership that is healthy and thus deserves to be esteemed highly in love. I'm going to read it again. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. It tells us two things about healthy church leadership. One is the number of leaders, and the second thing is the nature of their leadership. First, the number of leaders, it says acknowledge those. Plural. He's talking about multiple leadership. God has designed his church to be led not by a single person, but by a group of people. We see this all over the Bible. Acts chapter 14, verse 23, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church. Acts 20, 17, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Hebrews 13 verse 7a, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. And the one that we all know, James chapter 5 verse 14, is anyone among you sick? 
Let him call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Can we see? I can go on and on and on, but we can see that God's pattern is that multiple people, multiple people should lead the church. And one of the biggest red flags is when power is concentrated in a church, in a single person, the so-called set man. And I'm not saying that people that have this system deliberately do it because they plan to abuse people. I'm saying that the system is very prone to abuse. To have a set man system is extremely dangerous, not only for the people in the church, but also for the soul of the set man himself. Because power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And so, yes, in City Church, we do have a lead pastor here. But he's not the only person at the very top. There are six of them that together lead the church, make decisions, and keep each other accountable. The second thing is the nature of their leadership. He says, leaders, they work hard among you, they care for you in the Lord, and they admonish you. The idea is not of people who sit about, sit down and loaf about, but people who work hard. And being a church leader is hard work. <laughs> I'm not one of them. <laughs> Think about preaching, for example. I'm not one of the leaders, but from time to time, I preach here. And almost, in fact, every time I have to, I, I have to preach, I, I, almost, I tell my wife, I don't know how people do this every Sunday. Because it's not easy. But leading a church is not just all about preaching. In fact, not all our leaders preach, but it's about people thinking about the people, coming alongside them, trying to bear this person's burden, praying for them, what, the agonizing about how to lead the church well. It is a huge burden. <laughs> Paul puts it best in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, from verse 28 to 29. He says, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Is it any wonder, brothers and sisters, sisters, that so many pastors suffer from burnout and stress-induced health challenges? But Paul says, good leaders do not only work hard, they work hard among you. They are not aloof from the congregation, but they are involved in the life of the people. This is the proximity Paul is talking about. In 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 7, he says, Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted. It gave us joy to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. Have you seen a nursing mother before? The child is always close by. They're always forcing, always attending to them. In fact, their lives are organized around that child. And Paul is saying this is how good leaders care for you in the Lord. Well, caring is not, it's not all vibes. The word there also means to be over someone. So it means that they exercise authority, but in a caring way, for your own good. Admonishing has a sense of instructing, of correcting, of having the hard conversations that you do not want to have. But you need to have. Why do they do this? Because of the gospel. They're thinking about Christ, the good shepherd. How he laid down his life for his sheep. How even now he's making intercession for his people. And they say, because I'm an under shepherd, I will do likewise. And guys, if you're visiting or you're listening, this is the standard that God calls leaders in the church to. 
But if City Church is your church, I think you agree with me that it's not an exaggeration if I say that our leaders meet this standard. And so we are supposed to honor them. Honor Pastor Femi, Dami, Emmanuel, Francis, Samuel, Uncle Yemi, celebrate them. Love them. Joyfully submit to their leadership. <laughs> Obey what the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, that says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that will be of no benefit to you. All my friends, I say, Pastor, paraphrasing this passage, says that there are two types of people in church. There are those that give the pastor so much problem that when he's praying for them, he will just put his hand on the membership register and say, Father, bless everybody here. <laughs> but there are others that when the pastor wants to pray for them, he will kneel down <laughs> and say, God, this one. <laughs> Be the kind of person that your leaders are happy to lead. But what Paul does is really, really brilliant. He doesn't give any specific instructions to perform. He just says, love them. Why? Because love is always looking for an avenue to express itself. And love is not primarily about money or material things. I think it's primarily first concern for their welfare. My five-year-old, my, my first daughter, she put us to shame in this, in this regard. So a while back, she went to Pastor Femi's house, and when she came back, she said, ah, Pastor Femi was wearing something on his neck. And I asked him, and he said, he's not feeling well. And so that evening, when she went to go to bed, she said, let us pray for Pastor Femi. And I tell you, every day, it's been over three months, every single day before she goes to bed, she says, let us pray for Pastor Femi. That's the kind of concern we are talking about. Concern for their welfare. It means that you send a word of encouragement their way. Because the work they do can be extremely, extremely discouraging. I think one of the best things you can encourage them is a simple text and email saying, hey, this is how my life used to be, but in my one year, six months of coming to City Church, this is how the gospel has transformed my life. That kind of message can inject new life into them. That's what he did for Paul. He had sent um, Timothy to Athens to inquire about the Thessalonian Christians, and Timothy came back with good news, and Paul said in chapter 3, verse 17, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in all our distress and persecution, we were encouraged about you because of your faith. It says, for now, we really live. Since you are standing firm in the Lord, what he's saying? He's saying, because of your testimony, I can go one more day. Guys, I said it doesn't, it's not primarily about material things, but it doesn't exclude, <laughs> it doesn't exclude material things. And we can often lose sight of this. A while ago, this was a long time ago. So before I moved to Lagos, so sometime before 2013, I was invited to preach somewhere. So I went, finished preaching, they gave me an envelope. If I told you the story, don't say anything. So if I told you the story, really don't say anything. So typically, I don't, I would just say, nah, no need, but I was very broke. <laughs> I still remember putting that envelope inside my, my Bible of brown, inside my brown Bible. And so I left. I was so broke that immediately I drove out of sight. I parked <laughs> to see what the Lord had done. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, can you guess how much was inside that envelope? Anybody? 1K? 5K? 
letter of appreciation. To love people. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm serious. We need to love people with more than just our words. Paul is not shy about this. He says it with his full chest. If we have some spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? And we don't do pastors' day here, but I think it's such a lovely practice. People coming together and say, hey, our pastors, we thank you for your service. We thank you for your sacrifice. We are going to say it not just with our mouth, but also with the things that we have. And why we don't do pastors' day here, I want to acknowledge that City Church is a generous church. There are people here that are incredibly, unbelievably generous to our leaders. And thank you for that if you're one of them. But if you're not one of them, I also want to encourage you to think about the ways that can express love to our leaders because of the work they do. But someone may have a question, and I think it's a valid question, especially considering our context. What do you do when your leaders are barristers? <laughs> you know who a barrister is? Someone that has bar. <laughs> someone that has bar, that has money. <laughs> what will you do when your leaders I'm not, I'm not church rats, you know. <laughs> I may be like, I want to do something for them, but I don't have a lot. I in, what could I possibly give them that they will appreciate? And I understand how this can be somewhat difficult, but let's hear what Paul says. If you're truly, starts from truly esteeming them highly in love. And if you are doing that, you begin to notice small things that don't cost a lot, but mean a lot. I'm not saying that if you, cannot, if you can afford it, you should not go and buy them chingum, no. But <laughs> you begin to notice small things that are not so expensive, but they mean a lot. It could be as simple as saying, hey, Pastor Femi, this Lucozade you've been drinking since January. Here's a pack of Lucozade. I'm not saying that if you should go and buy all the Lucozade in Ebano now. <laughs> and give him Jedi Jedi, no. I'm saying that it is the, it's not the cost or the thought that counts. There are so many things I was thinking about. There are so many things that are not so expensive, but they mean something. And I'm, by now, I'm not just talking about giving to Pastor Femi. I'm talking about all six of them. You can give them airtime. You can buy books for their kids. You can buy them fruits. You can buy them fresh juice. Most importantly, you can buy them plantain. Because <laughs> everybody knows that a man that does not eat dodo is not fit for the ministry. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, there are heretics that eat soft to do, but that's a discussion for another day. <laughs> but guys, let us not behave like those girlfriends. 
at on your boyfriend's birthday, they'll say, what can I give somebody that has everything? <laughs> they'll now They will now send him a text on that and say, a king was born today. <laughs> Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> like Mother Teresa said, we cannot all do great things, but we can all do little things with great love. However, elders are not perfect. They will make mistakes. They will hurt you. And this is why Paul says in verse 13b, he says, live at peace with each other. Because nobody is perfect. And if you put a magnifying glass on anybody, I mean anybody's life, you will see their flaws. Far too often, like someone says, when it comes to ourselves, we are good lawyers. But when it comes to others, we are good judges. And Paul is saying, we all should have a posture of conciliation. Sometimes you may greet a leader and they may not answer you. And the song says, charge it to their head and not their heart. Yes, they may not always meet your expectations. We are not supposed to be up in arms against them. This idea that ah, I'm the person that gives the leaders basketballs is not the flex we think it is. Well, also, I think it means that we're not also supposed to idolize them. I think peace means that people may have disagreements, but you seek to reconcile. I think it means also that leaders do not see every disagreement as an attack on the mission but try to live in peace. And once again, I really do think that our leaders do embody this. There was a GC I was in a while back, and there was an issue. And the leaders called the family meeting and said, hey guys, we acknowledge that we dropped the ball on this issue, and we are sorry. By the grace of God, it won't happen again. Why did they do that? Because God calls us to live in peace with each other. But Paul doesn't just tell us to love only the leaders. He says we should extend this love to all the members in the church. And this love is expressed in service. My second point is serving community. Verse 14. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. He doesn't say, hey, pastors, do this. It says, brothers and sisters, it's our responsibility to do the work of the ministry. So many times people fall through the cracks in church as saying nobody knows what is happening to them. Because, and the reason, part of the reason is because we are waiting for the leaders or church staff to do everything. But God calls us, all of us, to not as spectators, but as co-laborers, as participants in what God is doing. And why should we serve others in this way? Because of the gospel. We are called to serve others in the same way that Jesus served. He said the Son of Man came not to, be ser- not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. But it's not easy, is it? Paul is not looking at life through rose-tinted, idealistic frames when he says this. He acknowledges that there are problematic people in the church. That's what this verse is about. It could be that you also are the problematic person in the church. And I just want to say that the fact that there are problems in a church does not necessarily mean that God is not present there. There were problems in the early church. In fact, I'll go as far as saying that if we are doing community the right way, it is inevitable that there will be problems. Why? Because it's only when there is contact that there can be friction. 
There will be friction in true Christian community. It will be uncomfortable. It will be painful. <laughs> friction produces heat. But you know what else friction does? It smooths out our own rough edges. Paul is saying that there will be people that are unruly. There are people that are disheartened. There are people that are weak. But do you know what else is happening? God is using them to teach you patience. God is using them to teach you kindness. God is using the friction of Christian community to conform us to the image of Christ. There are always people out of step in the congregation. Always, always, always. And if you've been in any type of parade, you know this. Maybe if you were seven. When I was seven in my platoon, there was a guy. And while everybody was marching left, right, left, right, he was marching like this. <laughs> it was hilarious. For some reason, he just could not do it. <laughs> but here's the thing. If you're looking at this guy from a distance, how would you know if he was doing it on purpose or not? Paul gives us different responses to different type of problematic people. He says we should warn those that are unruly, which will encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. But it will be disastrous if we mixed up both. If we went and said encouraging the unruly, they would just keep doing what they are doing. Can you imagine if Jesus had told the woman that was caught in the act of adultery, you brood of vipers? have been disastrous. How can we help them without knowing? This is why we have to come close. We have to listen. We have to care first. Why? Because of the gospel. That's what Jesus did for us. He drew close to us. He became a man. He emphasized our weakness. In fact, his name Emmanuel means God with us. But this verse is really super realistic. That's why the end of verse 14 says, be patient with everyone. Why? Because change takes time. People will be people. People will mess up. You'll be trying to help people. Or be patient with everyone. I just want to say patience, I think, is not enabling people. It is not that you're not firm with them sometimes. I think it's a hard posture of optimism that people can change. And I think it's one of the hardest things to obey in this passage. It's really hard. But what can we do? Two things. First thing, take a deep breath. <laughs> Maybe some have said that you have to take a second deep breath again. And the second thing is to remember the gospel. What did Jesus do to people that were deserving of his wrath and judgment? He became like us, lived among us, suffered for us, died for us. How many times did you hear the gospel yet refused to change? Did God give up on you? How many times now do we keep taking his work for granted? Yet he continues to love us. He continues to be patient and long-suffering towards us. And the challenge of the gospel is this. If God has been so long-suffering towards me, how can I be anything else but patient with my brother or sister? Verse 15 says, Make sure nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, don't pay back evil for evil. Paul takes it for granted that you're not doing that. He says, all of you in the church, make sure others are not doing it. We're supposed to be actively intervening in the lives of people. Sometimes when we are hurt, one of the ways we pay back evil for evil is not to actively try to harm them, of course not. But we can distance ourselves from them can cancel them. 
You can say, I don't blame you. It's, it's my fault. <laughs> it's my fault. But I promise you it will never happen again. <laughs> From now on, make everybody day their day. It's a day in something. And Paul is saying, you that is not involved in that issue, drag them back. Intervene in it. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 2 to 3, it talks about two men, Yodia and Sanctiki, that were at odds. And he says, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. And I want to ask us, are there people that we know in church that are not on good terms? Are there people that we know that used to be close, but now the relationship has cooled somewhat? Are we doing anything about it? Or are we minding our own business? How do we help them? Now, I've guessed correct. Remind them of the gospel. Of how we are called to forgive one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. Sometimes we have to be a bit firm and add that Jesus promises that it's the same measure of forgiveness we dish out, it's the same measure we'll receive from God. Do you see, guys, that Christian community is shaped by the gospel? It is lived out of the gospel. Leaders lead and care for us because of the gospel. We love and submit to them because of the gospel. We relate to each other with the gospel in mind. Like we like to say in City Church, the gospel is not just the A to B, C of the Christian life. It is the A to Z of the Christian life. We cannot outgrow our need of the gospel. We have to remind ourselves over and over, over and over every day, of the gospel and work out its implications in our lives if we are to live the life that God has called us to live. And there's a specific aspect of the gospel that Paul refers to in this passage that I think holds it together. A third point, a true community. There's a movie franchise. It's called The Fast and the Furious. And depending on how you're counting, there are about nine films in, ten films in, and the movies are famous for two things. First thing is the ridiculous car stunts that happen in the movie. In fact, I hear that they're going to space now. But the second thing is the lead character played by Vin Diesel, a guy called Dominic Toretto. The lead character's commitment to family. He goes on and on and on about it. And Paul is just like him in the book of First Thessalonians. 19 times he confessed to them as brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. In this verse, two, four verses, he said, it, he said it twice. And I think it's deliberate. I think he's saying you cannot understand these instructions outside the context of family. Because God has called us into his family. Our sin made us orphans, slaves, or slaves children of wrath. But when the fullness of time had come, Galatians 4 verse 4, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. In Christ, God transformed a people that were not his to become his treasured possession. God transformed people that were undeserving to become beloved children of the living God. And because of this benefit of adoption that we get to call God our Father, but it also means that every believer has become our sibling. We cannot have one without the other. And so we put on the lens of family. We say that these instructions are not strange at all. Nobody pats you on the back for being patient with your family. Nobody congratulates you when you live at peace with your siblings. 
or you help each other or tell each other hard truths. On the contrary, we know that it's not normal. I'm not saying that we don't do it. But it's not normal to cut off our family. You can be friends with someone for a long time. But if something were to happen to that relationship, you will be hot, you may cry. But do you know what else you'll say? You'll say, 20 children cannot play together for 20 years. But if we're your brother or sister, I think it will be different. When Peace Square, the singing group, Peace Square, when they broke up, everybody was shocked. Why were they shocked? Was it because they were successful? No, successful groups break up all the time. The reason that what made it so scandalous because these guys were brothers. In fact, they were twins. And so the overwhelming reaction was, what could your brother possibly do to you that you guys will fight to this extent? And guys, when Paul calls us brothers and sisters, it's not a metaphor. He's saying that the way you look at your siblings is how you should look at your brother or sister in Christ. And you'll be like, wait, hold up, hold up, hold up. Rewind a bit. I Rewind a bit. Are you saying that you treat people in short how I treat my siblings? It's not me that said it. <laughs> Jesus is actually very clear about this. In Luke, Matthew chapter 12, he was talking to the crowd and people came to him and said, hey, your mother, brother, mother and brothers, let's read it, your mother and brothers stood outside waiting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. And Jesus replied, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he says, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. May say, and someone else may say, but there are so many Christians. There are over two billion Christians in the world. How can I relate to each of them as my sibling? And someone asked Jesus a similar question in Luke 10. And Jesus' reply was a story we refer to now as the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's about a guy that was relayed by robbers, and people were passing him by, and eventually someone who was supposed to be his enemy was the person that helped him. And then Jesus said in verse 36 of Mark, Luke 10, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. The issue is not Christians in Nepal or Madagascar. The issue is what you will do about the Christians sitting down next to you. Because if you cannot care about the ones you see here, you will not care about those other ones. Perhaps one of the reasons we struggle with, with this, with accepting other Christians as our siblings, is because the, the implications are big. It can be inconvenient too. A theologian says, says if others neither, a theologian talking about it says, if others neither have goods we want, so he's talking about relational goods, things like companionship, affection, friendship, nor can pe perform services we need, we make sure that they are at a safe distance and close ourselves off from them so that they can make no inordinate claims on us. But if we're family, it will be different, won't it? We don't turn our back on family. The funniest part about our resistance is that we don't even know that this is we are calling our siblings, our actual siblings. So. <laughs> How many of us here, if you have done a DNA test on your sibling before, raise up your hand. At the end of the day, 
The only reason you accept them as siblings is that you take your parents' word for it. It's true. It's true. That's what it is. Your mother could have been lying to you. And I want to ask us, why do we struggle so much with taking our Heavenly Father's word for it? The same way God calls us to work out the implications of the other benefits of the gospel, our justification will be declared righteous by God, our sanctification will be set apart from him. It's the same way God calls us to work out the implications of our adoption in regards, with regards to our relationship with our other people, other people in church. Because to deny that the person seated next to you is your actual brother or sister is to deny that you have become a child of God. I want to say it again. To deny that the person seated next to you, if that person is a Christian, is your actual brother or sister, is to deny that you have become a child of God. So what do we do? How do we become truly family? We've established that it's not genetics because we take that on faith. Some of us may have been adopted or we have adopted siblings. Of course, they are your family. I think looking at it from the outside, what makes family family is being in the same space and doing things together over a period of time. You cannot become family without spending time with people. We need to make room for people. It means, I'm sorry, that it means that we have to open our houses to people. We have to eat your food. It means you also have to go and visit people. We need to take the time to start to get to know each other. But making physical room starts with making room in our hearts. The same theologian I quoted earlier, he calls it the will to embrace. And he said, Christians, you always have a heart posture of arms open to embrace. A heart posture of invitation. Coincidentally, this is our year of invitation. Invitation looks different for different people. It may mean that you are sending a text to someone, that you're talking to someone new after church, that someone just gave birth, and people don't really talk, but you go and visit them. You comment on their blogs. Keep your arms open in invitation. Be open to the idea of a relationship. What happens when we have this will to embrace? What Paul says in verse 15 there will begin to happen naturally. He says, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. We begin to see opportunities everywhere. Oh, I went to Ebano and I saw something that reminded me of you. So I bought it for you. We'll do what somebody in my GC this week said, I want to teach people how to cook Chinese fried rice. If you want to learn, come and learn. Or you do like, you know, what the Adiramis do. Say, we are going to the beach. Will you come along with us? And let me tell you a secret. The more you do what is good for people, the more you want to do it. It's a loop. I call it it's a loop of grace. Actually, it's not really a secret. It's actually very well researched. It's called the Benjamin Franklin effect. But there's a less fancy word that describes it. Doing what is good for people. That word is called kindness. 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 But kindness at its core is simply doing for others. And that's what, the, that's, what the word, that's what the word means. What you would ordinarily do for people you consider your chain. People you consider your kind. 
The people in your moral circle. Our moral circle are people that we are consistently lavish to, that we don't consider helping them an inconvenience. And for some of us, unfortunately, even though we are Christians, our moral circles, we are the only person inside that circle. Some of us is just our immediate family. Some of us just a select few people. But an embrace is also a circle. It's a circle that is open. It's a circle that includes others. It's a circle that makes room. But why we should make room? Because someone else made room for us. Jesus was in a perfect family. He was in a perfect circle. There was no friction in the Trinity. But he became a man because he wanted to include us. He did not see anything worthy of us, but he loved us anyway. When the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, he loved us not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. On the cross, the Son of God died with arms open in invitation for undeserving sinners. And he calls us to take up our cross daily, to live our lives in the same posture. Yes, including people may make your house slightly untidy. It may cost you some money. It may mess up your schedule. It may be a bit awkward. But we can never, ever forget that it cost the perfect, sinless Son of God his life. So the Bible says, therefore, welcome each other as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I said by talking about scrolls and how we just we have to roll it backwards to understand what is going on, but it's not that's just half of the story. We also have to roll it forward. The gospel is not just about what God has done for us or what He's doing for us right now, it's also about what God is going to do for us in the future. And so to be shaped by the gospel is not just to look to the past, but to look ahead to Christ's return. When people are almost getting married when they have a date, when it's very close, they begin to do some things while they are yet unmarried that somehow mirror the things they will do when they are married. Not sex. I don't mean sex, not sex. But they may begin to start planning finances together when they have a date. They begin to attend more events together. Why? Because when your future is looming large in front of you, it begins to shape your presence. It begins to bleed into your present. And this is the entire point of the series. That Paul wants our lives to be shaped by eschatological urgency. That Jesus is coming back. What does this have to do with loving each other? Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 1 from verse 4 to 5. He says, we have heard of your faith. We are talking about love now. We've heard of your love you have for all God's people. And where does this faith and love come from? It springs from the hope stored up for you in heaven. What he's saying, because my future looms large in front of me, because I have a hope, I will begin to live like my future destiny. This is why I love my leaders. This is why I love my brothers and sisters, because I am looking forward to the time when I will enjoy fellowship with my God and my brothers and sisters forever. So I will start now. I will start now. But Jesus knows this is not easy. He knows that we are stubborn. He knows that we are hard-hearted. So it tells us one last thing about treating our brothers and sisters, our people as brothers and sisters. There's a parable Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 21 about the king that had a vineyard. And when it was time to get the fruit, the servants refused to give him the fruit. He sent many people to them. 
But he maltreated them. Finally, he sent his son. In his head, he was thinking, surely they will respect my son. Surely they will revere my son. But they do not listen. In fact, they end up killing the son. And so he judges them. And this is a parable we find hard to apply to ourselves because it really is about the Jews' rejection of Jesus. And so we're like, um, number one, I was not living in the time of Christ. And number two, I have not rejected Jesus. I've accepted him. But Jesus says also in Matthew chapter, Matthew, but in chapter 25, and when he returns, he's going to tell some people, I was sick and in prison, and he did not visit me. I was a stranger, and he did not include me. And he'll say, when did we see you? We did not see you. We were waiting for a return. When did you come to us? And he will say, if you did not do it to the least of my brethren, you did not do it to me. Jesus does not just tell us. Jesus does not just, not, not just tell us to use him as an example. He says, I am coming personally to you in disguise. I'm coming to you in the guise of your neighbor, that annoying church member, that first-time attendee, that woman with the crying baby, your children's nanny, your driver, and anyone who welcomes them welcomes me. In effect, when we now accept fellow Christians as our actual brothers and sisters, we are rejecting Christ the same way those wicked tenants did. And it's my prayer. Now, on that day, God will not say to you and me, like he said to those tenants, I sent my son to you. I thought at least you respect my son. At least you revere my son. But he did not. At the end of the day, like someone says, we love people not just to be like Jesus. We love them to welcome Jesus. Jesus is now missed today in disguise. Are we going to embrace him? Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church. Love Jesus. Love people. Love Lagos.